The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to ask you a question that I'm going to ask you to share in a minute, so I'm going to give you a minute to think about it uh, while I tell you a short story. My question for you that you can be thinking about is what was the most meaningful uh, gift you were able to give uh, in this season, in this last month? And then I'll tell you about a gift that you gave me that you may not even know that you gave me. Um, Yesterday, um, I got to show up as I do on the weekends, uh, early on a Saturday, uh, to make sure my sermon is coming together and everybody's here and things are moving. And as I strolled in, um, we often uh, have new babies added to our community. I see some that I've been excited to see even now. We have some that are in the womb uh, around the room, and that's really exciting. Uh, but our church family is also growing with babies that are coming and children that are coming through the foster care program that we've been able to found called Refugio. And uh, yesterday, I got just by surprise, I showed up at the church and the Azar family was here. And they said, Pastor Chris, would you join us? We're about to meet our new foster son. Um, Michael is his name. We got to do a dedication for him uh, in the last service. Uh, Michael's five years old. He's from El Salvador. And uh, he is thrilled to be here and he loves his family. He now has a foster sister who's also five. Um, I can tell you that of the kids that we received, um, they, they have a story. They are, um, they're beautiful, remarkable kids. Uh, this, this little boy, Michael, uh, we, don't, we don't know who does his hair. I can, if you look, you can't really see it in the photo, um, but uh, he, his hair is beautifully braided. That tells me that a parent, that a friend, that an aunt or Maybe an uncle, I don't know any uncles that can braid that well. (laughs) But somebody, somebody loved that boy enough to care really well for his hair. And uh, we don't know what he's leaving behind, but um, we're really grateful to be a part of what he gets to be received into. And uh, I can just tell you, there aren't many pastors that get to show up at their church on a Saturday and witness the miracle of a five-year-old meeting the family that's gonna care for him. And um, It's a gift. Thank you for being that kind of church. Uh, I love you and I'm grateful for you. And now I wanna give you a moment to share a story of your favorite gift giving moment. And as I do that, some of our staff are gonna come through with a small gift uh, for you. It'll fit the story that I'm gonna tell you. You won't won't all get it, um, but I have some some panda jamon or sometimes called panda navidad. Uh, This is a Christmas bread. Uh, that's common in Venezuela. So you ought to just reach out and get it because it's gonna be gone really quickly and there's not enough for the 11. Uh, it is not vegetarian at all. So don't, um, don't pretend that it is, but it's delicious and I'll tell you more about it. So now you've got about 60 seconds to turn to somebody close to you and tell them about the most, well, this is the thing. I'd like you not only to talk about the most significant gift you gave, but what would it look like if that gift was multiplied in some way? We can talk more about what that means. So turn, share the story with somebody next to you. Okay, as you wrap up your story, I'm gonna tell you one of mine. So uh, if you got a little bit of pan de jamon, uh, what do you think? It's delicious, isn't it? So I, that was uh, a meaningful gift I received uh, last Christmas. Uh, in fact, I received it twice. There were two women in our church 
with Venezuelan heritage um, that at different points in the Christmas season last year came to me and just offered this gift and uh, they both said something similar to me. They just said, um, you know, this is really typical way we celebrate Christmas in Venezuela and uh, you're our pastor and you've been praying for Venezuela. At that point, we weren't doing anything. We didn't know what to do. Uh, but they just said, thank you for praying for Venezuela. And here it is. In fact, one of them gave it to me on a day that I was sneaking out for my sermon. If you ever see me just sneaking out, it's either I'm going to see family or I'm going to the Texans game. And, um, and I was headed to the Texans game and I managed to sneak it into the Texans game. And I remember eating that. So it's, uh, if you didn't get any, it's fresh bread wrapped in ham and raisins and olives. And I remember eating it during the Texans game that we actually won. And which, by the way, it was a great game yesterday. Um, and I remember eating it thinking, this is so much better than all of the overpriced stuff they're selling all around me. And so enjoying it. And just being reminded, like, I love Venezuelan people. And one of the reasons uh, that we're doing a lot in Venezuelan uh, right now is because I think their food is amazing. And it made me think of them and pray for them. And I'm selfish that way. Um, there are some of you I'm friends with you because you offer me good food. That's why you're my friend. And, uh, and, and that's just kind of the way I'm built. But I remember after eating that panda jamon, just thinking about it over and over. And, uh, and many of you have gotten to hear some of the story, but we had an impromptu trip based on this reminder that our friend said, we, we celebrate Christmas with hayakas, with tamales and panda jamon. And I got to go uh, back just before Christmas and we invited in a hundred pastors. This is our, our group of pastors and their spouses. It's a long story. We ended up eating at a five-star restaurant. It wasn't the plan. Uh, we were gonna eat at the church, but the church was way too hot. We had done some ventilation, but I didn't quite calculate that we had also built out a kitchen and a bakery, actually a bakery that makes uh, panda jamon. And we got to give away, this is how our gift multiplied. Uh, not only did we get to give thousands uh, of tamales to our brothers and sisters and churches in Venezuela. We had hundreds and hundreds, you can see on the rack behind me, that was just for that day, the panda jamon that was made and uh, that was shared in really generous and beautiful ways. And I'm so grateful that these sweet sisters offered a small gift and that it inspired a multiplication of gifts. And that's part of what I'm gonna talk to you about today. Uh, we're gonna be, uh, our teaching team, teaching you uh, from the Gospel of John. We're gonna be looking particularly at the signs, the wonders, the miracles that happen in the Gospel of John, and many of them involve that kind of multiplication. In fact, uh, part of what the pastors that were there, uh, they didn't realize they were getting the ingredients to go back and make tamales, so at dinner that night I told them, and they started to scream. It was literally like Oprah when it was like, you get a car and you get a car. And uh, they were so excited to go back and be able to feed the people in their church. And, uh, and many of them said to me, um, we're praying that we have a miracle like the fish and the loaves. And somehow we're gonna go back and the 10 kilos of meat that you give us, it's just somehow gonna multiply. And I've gotten messages from people, they found me on WhatsApp and, and uh, said, we don't know how, but we fed way more people than we ever dreamed that we could feed. And I just wonder like, what would it be like? And we'll look at it in this story. Like, what would it be like to be the kid that had the bread and the fish, right? And then all of a sudden you see your gift multiplied and that's part of what you are a part of, Ecclesia. And today we're gonna look at the first uh, sign in the Gospel of John. And most of you that know me are like, I'm surprised the pastor doesn't preach on this sign every week because it's probably 
his favorite story in the Bible. Um, and most of you know what that first sign is, right? The first miracle of Jesus is, right? It's pretty amazing, right? And so for a pastor that loves wine, you'd think I'd just meditate on this passage every day. Um, because the reality is it's pretty beautiful that Jesus, like he's at a party, and not only does he just help solve a problem, but he does it in a magnificent way, the best wine anybody would ever tasted. And he did a moderate estimate is about 150 gallons, right? Um, it's extravagant. It's, it's beautiful. And part of what we see in this story is that where we see emptiness and lacking, that Jesus leans in and provides abundance. And so what I'd like to do, as much as I love the literal story, I think the literal story is beautiful and amazing, I, what I'd like to ask you to do today is lean in with me and to see the story as a metaphor. And if we'd say what Jesus does is provide abundance in places that we have emptiness or lacking, I, I'd like to invite you, and I gotta get WD-40 on my stool. Does anybody else hear that squeak as I, that's what I do is turn. Um, I, what I'd like to invite you to do is to consider this as a story for your inner life. To consider the places in your inner life that may be empty or lacking. Maybe you'd look at your inner life and say, I've been lacking peace or contentment, trust. Maybe you'd look at your inner life and say, I've been, I've been lacking in acceptance or love? Anybody looking back on 2019 and just going, I really had too much love in 2019? It was just, just, it was kind of an overdose on love. I'm kind of going for less love to be experienced in 2020. Probably not, right? That for most of us, we'd go, um, we've come to places that we've felt deep rejection. And what I wanna suggest to you today is that that rejection and the emptiness and the neediness that goes with it, that it creates obsession, uh, often obsession around the wrong things. What happens is we feel rejected, might be by the people we love most, and so what we wanna do is fill that gap, and we really want, we in fact think we need other people's approval and acceptance. And so today, we're gonna look at this story as a metaphor and really what it leads to is that I'm gonna preach the first sermon. It's kind of strange to me that I've been uh, now preaching, it's almost 30 years, and this will be the first sermon I've ever preached to you on what I think is a really important topic. It may be one of the primary problems that every person in the room has, and you can call it different things, people-pleasing. Uh, what I'm gonna to refer to it commonly today is codependence. Um, you, you can see codependence in a lot of different ways. There are multiple ways to define it. The way I would uh, just simply suggest to you is that codependence equals, that my self-worth equals my performance plus your approval. That what I need, and, and this is the truth, Ecclesia, this is, I, I, in the church I grew up in, I was told about Christianity, but I was taught or demonstrated codependence. What, what I was actually taught was this kind of, hey, are we okay? Are you okay with me? Because if you're okay with me and I'm okay with you, then we're both okay. And the reality is, right, if that's the way you live, if you live by being okay, if other people are okay with you, it's not only not healthy, it's not Christian, 
In fact, what I'm gonna suggest to you, and I'm gonna suggest it to you as a codependent, as a person who's fallen into and is falling into many of these traps, what I'm gonna suggest to you is that it's a really bad way to live. I wanna invite you into some simple truths that would lead us out of that obsession. I, I learned about this early on. Many of you know the story. If Ecclesia exists in part because I, I, um, I, I got the, the most unique job that a teenager ever um, began to work in. In my high school years as a teenager, I got a job uh, going to AA meetings and uh, I would record the speakers that would come to AA meetings. I'd go to multiple meetings a week, 15, 16, 17 years old. And, uh, and I heard a lot about addiction, I learned a lot. I heard a lot about codependence, but I didn't understand it. And what I'm hoping today is to invite you into some things uh, that will help you uh, better assess where you are in that and have some truths to live by. One of the things you can look for is that if you are literally, you feel like you are uh, magnetically attracted to people in extreme crisis, uh, that's one of the signs of codependency. I, as a pastor, this is a really easy trap to get into. In the earliest years of Ecclesia, I can just tell you, like, people that were in the worst shape ever, I just spent all my time with them. I used to just, I, I, I'd literally go pull people out of crack houses until I realized, like, they wanted to be in the crack house, right? That's where they wanted to be. That's the choice they were making. But I thought that I, I could have value if I was fixing other people. It wasn't healthy or good for me. So I wanna invite you into this story and then I'm gonna share with you four simple truths or principles that I think if together we could live by them in 2020, it could radically, radically change the way that we live. So let's look at the story again. We're gonna look at it as a metaphor. It's beautiful on the surface, but I think it's even more beautiful if you will apply it to your inner life. This is what it tells us in John 2, that three days later, they, meaning Jesus and his disciples, they all went to celebrate a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, which by the way is one of my favorite places to visit when we uh, go to the Holy Land. If you're married there, we renew your vows. We've had some people that we love, a, a number of them, uh, that have gotten married in Cana. It's a pretty fun place to get married. And what we know is at this wedding that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was invited together with him and his disciples. And while they were celebrating, the wine ran out. And Jesus' mother hurried over to her son. And Mary said this to Jesus. She, she said, Jesus, the host stands on the brink of embarrassment. There are many guests and there's no more wine. You can almost hear the urgency in her voice. And Jesus replied, dear woman, is it our problem they miscalculated when buying wine and inviting guests? My time has not arrived. Now, part of what we hear in this, I've read this story many times and I've just kind of breezed past it as a part of the dialogue between Jesus and Mary. What I wanna to suggest to you today, Ecclesia, is that Jesus is always teaching and that Jesus is teaching us this really, like Jesus is saying, this is not my problem. And I'd suggest to you that if Jesus, the one who made those people, who made all things and created all things, if Jesus says it's not his problem, then it's definitely not our problem, right? And that one of the most important decisions that you can make in 2020 is to actually define what are your problems and what are other people's problems. 
I'm curious if there's anybody in the room that could look back on 2019 and say, I didn't spend any nights at all restless or worrying about other people's problems. Anybody here that could look back on 2019 and just go, I never did that. I didn't do that once. How many be like, in 2019, I lost sleep worrying about other people's problems, right? I did things trying to fix other people's. How many of you are never gonna raise your hand no matter how many questions I ask you? <laughs> how many people are breathing in the room today? Four, right? Thank you, I appreciate it. No one pays attention to me. I'm just sitting up here babbling. Um, I, I, I believe, Ecclesia, that if we could come to this place that we focused on our own problems and we let other people's problems be exactly what they are, their problems. Now, that doesn't mean you won't have opportunities to be kind, to be helpful, to be generous. I hope you have opportunities to do all those things. But it's different than owning it as though it is your problem. So a few truths, uh, I'm gonna share four overall, but from the text that I think are important to learn in this. And this is really important for those of us that lean into this particular behavior. This is what I wanna encourage you to do in 2020. Act, don't react. Act. I hope you have a plan for 2020. I don't know which one you downloaded or which friend or how you map it out or what it is that you think you wanna do in 2020, but this is what I believe. All of you have gifts, all of you have unique abilities, all of you have a certain place in the world and in life that you're planted and there are things you're supposed to do. What I wanna invite you to do is to do those things. Not to live this life that's like, well, I was gonna do this, but I don't know, she's probably gonna do this and you don't know what she's like. This is really impossible. And so I'm just, I can't do anything because there's just too much chaos around me. Um, one of my favorite authors that writes about codependency, uh, Melody Beattie, and she writes out of great experience as an addict and codependent, says this. She says, codependents are reactionaries. They overreact, they underreact, but rarely do they act. They react to the problems, pains, lives, and behaviors of others. They react to their own problems, pains, and behaviors. And I think, Ecclesia, if we live in a reactionary way, it's a trap. What we're invited to do is say, you are made to do certain things. I would love to see you do those things and do them well in 2020. So how do you do that? Well, first, you tr start to figure out what you actually have control of. And you know what you have control of? You know what you're able to do? You're able to care for one person. One, you know who that is, right? You are that person. You are that person. If you will care well for that person, if in 2020 you will say, I will do what it takes to allow me to be a healthy, whole, functioning, loving, kind person. I'm going to care for myself. If you will do that, this will be an amazing year. I love this quote from Lala Delia. She says it this way. She says, self-care is how you take your power back. Right? You know what happens when you start taking care of yourself? You start realizing, I can do some stuff. I, there's some stuff I can do. I'm capable of doing some really amazing things. Now, if you're a mess emotionally, physically, spiritually, if you're a mess, you're not any good to you or to anyone else. 
But if you will care well for yourself, you're a force to be reckoned with in the world for good, a force for good. And I wanna be a part of a community filled with people like that. Second truth I want you to consider in 2020. Will you do this? In 2020, let's choose to love and not enable. To choose to be a people that love and not enable. One of the realities of codependency and one of the realities of human nature is that we tend to be a people that we just want to solve things for other people. And part of what I'd suggest to you in this, if you're a parent, I wanna apologize to you already because parenting is a trap for codependency. It just, you start and you really are that you first get them and they are fully reliant on you. You are fully responsible. You do have to fix their problems for a little while, for a little while. Because the goal in parenting is quickly to move to the place that they have to solve their own problems. They have to deal with their own consequences. And that starts at a very young age. And when we love our kids and we're attached to our kids and we don't want to see them hurt, it's just a really hard thing. I remember my oldest, literally, it's like she was quick to this, right? So it's kindergarten. And we're like ready to walk in and meet the teacher. She's like, no, 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 I got this, right? I'm doing this on my own. We're like, but we'd like to see the teacher. We want, I'm on my own. I got it, right? And what we got to do with, with kids at different ages in different ways is let them go and let them make their mistakes, and not enable them in those places. And this is hard work. But if you're one of these parents and you're calling your kid's employer or their college professor, you have a problem, right? (laughs) It's time to let it go. And at the same time, what I'd tell you is that codependency, this is hard. Some of you are here and you're Your life and some of the pain that you carry is reflected of broken relationships, of divorce, of kids that you've had to, for their own good, cut off in some ways. And that's hard and it's painful. And what I wanna say to you is that it's important that you continue to do the right thing even when it's not easy. One way to say this is, is, is uh, what Darlene Lancer says in her book. She says, allowing others to suffer the consequences of their own actions without enabling them is the best motivation for them to undertake the difficult task of change. This is what tough love is, right? Tough love is not being abrasive or harsh. Tough love is saying, I love you enough to let you feel the pain of your own mistakes and to pray and to believe that those mistakes are gonna lead you to a better place. The, the converse is actually really dangerous, and this is what I think, as Christians, it's easy to fall into. I wanna keep everybody happy. Tracy Malone says it this way, she says, people-pleasing is a very dangerous lifestyle. In the end, you lose yourself in the needs of others. What, what happens is, you lose all sense of self, of health and well-being. Let's go back to Jesus' story. And again, let's consider it as a metaphor. So John chapter two, verse four, he said, dear woman, right? Is it our problem? And what's Jesus saying? It's not our problem. But she turned to the servants and Mary said, do whatever my son tells you. And in that area were six massive stone water pots that could each hold 20 to 30 gallons. These are big pots. Remember, we're talking at least 150 gallons total. They were typically used for Jewish purification rites. 
So this would be for a mikvah or maybe uh, for hand washing. This, these were religious artifacts. And Jesus' instructions were clear. Fill each water pot until it's ready to spill over the top. Now this is a a biblical metaphor we see in here many times. One of the reasons uh, that I love um, celebrating Shabbat with our Jewish friends in Israel or here in the United States um, is a reminder of this metaphor. One of my favorite parts of our Shabbat meal, those of you who have been with me and we've celebrated those, is the, the, the man of the house will take uh, a special wine glass. He'll put it on the plate in front of him and he'll pour the wine into the cup until the wine spills over the cup and onto the plate. Right? And it's a symbol of what? Right? Of abundance, right? God's just like, it's just, you're, God's grace, his life, the richness. And again, what I'd suggest to you as we think of this symbolically, wine is a symbol in the Bible of the good life, of riches, of beauty, of hope, of joy, of happiness, right? And the, the great thing about Shabbat, right, is that the man of the house then has to take that glass, has got to consume that whole glass of wine before anything else can happen, right? And that's where you know, this is gonna be a heck of a party. This is gonna... <laughs> And it, th this is what's great. Like, I, I, we should all be more Jewish, right? Every Friday, every Friday, you eat, you laugh, you tell stories. We had one of our Shabbats in Israel that were, they were kind of hippie Jews. And uh, so we drank so much wine, ate so much food. We were on a rooftop. They loved Bob Marley. We were singing Bob Marley songs until like 2 a.m. Um, and they, every Friday, it's just like, this is what we do. We, we slow the world down to remind ourselves that God's given us abundance. So Jesus tells them, hey, do the same thing. Pour it till it's pouring over. And then he says, they did exactly as they were instructed. And after tasting the water that had become wine, the head waiter couldn't figure out where such wine came from, even though the servants knew. And he called over to the bridegroom in amazement. And the head waiter goes to him and he's saying, this wine's delectable. Why would you save the most exquisite fruit of the vine, right? He's saying what he knows is true. It's still true today. If we're thinking about this in a literal sense, right? The reality is if you throw a party today, you start with Camus and you end with like the Trapeche Malbec that you can get at CVS, right? Like you, you, gotta, you work your way down quickly. And Jesus knew, right? He said, a host would generally serve the good wine first. And when his inebriated guests don't notice or care, he would serve the inferior wine. You've held back the best for last. Now, join with me in thinking about this metaphorically if it's not just about good wine, if it's about what's lacking for you, trust, acceptance, love, joy, contentment, happiness. What does it look like to say, our God is the God who when he leans in, you experience a love, an acceptance, a joy that erases this rejection that's created obsession that you actually can fully rest in his love and you're not trying to meet it like you and I often are and like, are you okay with me? Because if you're okay with me, then I can feel like I'm okay. Here's the reality. There are going to be people that are never okay with you. There are going to be people be people who hate you and despise you. In fact, part of what I would tell you is the more gifted you are, the more remarkable you are, the more you use your gifts in the world, and I believe every person in this room has unique gifts that they're called to use, the more that you use those gifts that they're on display, there will be people that envy you at their core and will despise you. 
And your job is to be okay with it. Your job is to say, I am going to care well for myself. So just a few things, two more that I'll share with you and then we'll take communion. This is what I need you to know today and I'm praying you live into in 2020. This is what I want you to know. You are not only okay, you're beloved. And there's this goofy commercial that keeps coming on during football games where the surgeon is like, okay. okay. Hey, hear this. You're, you're not just okay. You are beloved. In fact, this is what the scripture tells us. In James 4, it makes really clear. Know this. There is, say it with me, one. One who stands as supreme as judge and lawgiver. And he alone is able to save and to destroy. So who are you to step in and try to judge another? This is what the Bible wants to make clear. There's one judge. One. It's God. The only one you answer to. If God's okay with you, then you're okay. And God's not only okay with you, God says you're beloved. The scriptures goes even further. It says, well, you, you've got one judge, but like in there in the courtroom and they're like a prosecutor, right? And there's in there a lawyer, what's, what's his stance? Well, Hebrews tells us queer, clearly, right? Yeah, there is one lawyer, there's one mediator. This is why Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And through his death, he delivered us from the sins that we have built up under the first covenant. And his death has made it possible for all who are called to receive God's promised inheritance. Hear this, there's one judge, it's God. There's one lawyer or prosecutor, that's Jesus. And he's not there to prosecute you. He's actually paid the price for you. You're not only okay, you're beloved. And Ecclesia, if we had a community filled with people that just realized, I'm beloved by God, I don't need the approval of my mom or my aunt or my neighbor or my coworker or my critics. If I'm okay with God, if I'm beloved by God, then I'm beloved. I just gotta tell you, it's like the simplest truth I just told you, but I believe I believe with all of my heart that if we would live into that this year, we'd experience a radically different year. We'd stop trying to please people we don't need to please. And you know what? They're never gonna be pleased. No matter what you do, there are certain people, you will never please them, and that's okay. Put another way, Melody Beattie says it this way. She says, we are lovable, even if the most important person in your world rejects you. And I want to say clearly today, I know for many of you that's been the case. Whether it's a child, I love the fact that we have babies in the room at Ecclesia. If you're new to Ecclesia and you think that noise is a distraction, I just want to, it's, it's that moment that draws us in and says that's what's most important, right? And, um, and and I wonder, like, what, what does it look like to be in a community where we train up our kids in a life that says what God thinks of you matters most? You realize most of us have learned people-pleasing from someone, right? Anybody here, you go, I, I learned it from, I've seen it demonstrated, and I just kind of kept doing it. What if you began to realize that stopping this people-pleasing pattern would not only be good for you, it would be good for the children that follow us? And if they would just live the life they're called to live, it would be a beautiful thing. Melody says it this way, even if the most important person in your world rejects you, you are still real and you are still okay. And I would go even further. You're not just okay, you're beloved. Lastly, and we'll take communion. I, I believe this simple truth could lead us to some new places this year, Ecclesia. Um, 
This is a, a phrase that's repeated so often in the scriptures, uh, you could almost flip every three pages and find it. It just tells us very clearly, be not afraid. And this is what I'd add to it. Don't be afraid and do the next right thing. Now, some of you recognize that's from a movie that was just out. I didn't think much of the movie. I thought it sounded like they wrote the music in like five minutes and they were cashing in on a previously really good movie. But I love that line. And I wondered, like, what, what would it look like? It's frozen if you haven't seen it. <laughs> but I love the line, and it just threw out the line. It was part of the story. It was like, I don't know what to do. Let's just do the next right thing. And I'll just tell you, there are a bunch of you in the room. I'm included. It's like you blew it last week. You blew it last month. You blew it last year. I get it. Okay, just do the next right thing. It's okay. You're not perfect. Let's just do the next right thing. Don't be afraid and do the next right thing. Whatever that next right thing is, Tracy Malone says it this way, always do the right thing. And this is the important part, despite the game someone else is playing. Many of us go, well, I'd like to do the right thing, but you don't have any idea what I'm dealing with, right? Like if you knew my mom, you'd know why I can't do the right thing. If you knew my boss, you'd know it's impossible to do the right thing. And I just tell you, yeah, it can be really hard and it can create chaos, but just do the next right thing. Is it the right thing? Then do it. Act on who you're made to be, what you have to do. Or put another way, she says, everyone has fears. It is the bravery of heart that triumphs over all fears. Listen, I, I live with the same fears. And the reality is there's some of you, a couple of you sleeping right now, and I'm thinking, they think this sermon's awful. I never should have preached a sermon on codependency, right? Like, I'm codependent in my codependent sermon. That's depressing, right? And your acceptance and approval of me matters all of a sudden. While I'm preaching to you that it shouldn't matter, this is not an easy thing to do. And yet I would just tell you, the alternative is not a great life. And I, like you hopefully, I wanna live the best life that God has for me. And you know what? You also do have some friends that love you unconditionally. Some are in this room. But I will tell you that this fear that all of us have I've just seen it over the course of the life of being a pastor that everybody's got it. We, in the earliest days of Ecclesia and still often today in our small groups, we invite people to share their stories. It's one of the most beautiful therapeutic things you can possibly do. You get with a group of people, you make great food, and you just tell them, Let me, can I tell you the story of my life? And everybody gets somewhat excited to do it and then usually a few days before, they start getting really nervous. And I often will get a phone call and it'll be like, hey, Pastor Chris, so I'm telling my story this week. I'm like, good, good, I'll say a prayer for you. I'm sure it'll be awesome. What are you serving? I'm, you know, if the food's good, I might come. And, um, and they say, well, I just need to know, like I, I, I think when I tell my, I really need to tell like the PG version of my story, right? And what I've learned is that every person at Ecclesia and otherwise has this belief, like if I tell people my real story, if I tell them what happened with my kids, if I tell them how I failed when I was young, if they know how I really think, these people are gonna reject me. 
Everybody has this idea they're going to come to a certain place in their story, and people are going to start throwing the chairs over and going, who are you? I don't want anything to do with you. Every person. And you know what? I've been in more than 100 of these, and when people get to that point in their story that they think this is it, they're about to walk out, you know what happens? The opposite. The chairs start moving closer in. People start putting their hands on them. And they're saying physically, hey, I'm not going anywhere. And in fact, this weird thing happens. In fact, it's, I saw it happen at AA meetings when I was growing up and going to meetings. And this strange thing happened where you go, man, knowing how messed up you are makes me feel a lot better about myself. This is really good. I really needed that. That was really helpful because I was feeling really down about myself until I knew what a mess you are, right? But it's what a mess we are. Because people start to go like, we're broken in some of the same ways. I've told you this often, but the reality is like, great life-changing friendships are never formed out of looking at someone and going, they seem perfect, they seem amazing, they are so awesome. I am also kind of perfect and amazing and awesome. (laughs) We should totally be friends. Nobody does that. We look at people and go, I like them. They're broken in some of the same ways I'm broken. We should be friends. Most of you look at me and go like, Chris has a real queso addiction. Like he can't stop. I have that same addiction. And it's not, it's all cheese, right? You can melt it, you cannot melt it. It doesn't matter. I can't stop. And the cheese makes me want bread, which makes me want wine, which makes me want more cheese, which makes me want more bread and more wine. And it gets really ugly, right? And so part of what I would just tell you is like, those places of brokenness, they draw us together, they don't separate us. But your job is not to fix my addiction. It's probably not to enable me, please don't drop queso off at the house. Well, maybe you can actually, just (laughs) small portions, just small portions so I stop, because that's my problem, I just eat till the end of it. So just very small portions are okay. But what I would just tell you is that in our brokenness together, let's care well for ourselves. Let's define what our problems are and not try to solve others. And let's be kind and good to one another. Will you give me a moment that I could just pray for you? And then we're gonna come to communion, to the table of the one who is the mediator, who stands in your stead and who says, This is my beloved. And so God, I thank you that every person in this room is beloved by you. They're unique, they're important, they have amazing gifts. They will never please every person on the planet. In fact, they won't even be able to please every person in their family. They won't even be able to please every person that they work with. But God, we know that when you look upon them, when you look upon me, you are well pleased. And so God, we accept that, that, that blessing and that truth. And we pray that it would allow us to go out and live a life where we get to act rather than to react. That we get to share generously. That we get to offer kindness and generosity to others without owning their problems and staying up at night trying to solve them. Lord, give us the faith to allow those that we love to experience the pain of their own choices and consequences. 
Please comfort us in moments that we struggle to let it go. And help us, God, to walk together in all of this. We pray this prayer together as a family, as a family that's growing with new babies, as a family that's growing with kids that are coming to us at the border separated from their parents. Lord, we thank you for the ways that our family is growing. Help us to care lovingly for one another. We pray all of this together and in your name, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ecclesiahouston.org.